Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time to remember this crap. Mike Donahue is here to remember crap. Mike, how are you? Good, Andy. Happy opening day. Yeah. Um, not to uh, not to date the uh, the podcast, because I know people will be listening t- to these for years. Might as well timestamp it. Yes. This was uh, opening day 2022, and the Cubs, as, those of you in the future now know, of course, that the Cubs won the World Series that year in shocking fashion and that they got off on the right foot when they, when they beat Corbin Burns and the burly, uh, brew men of Milwaukee. Uh, Defending Cy Young champion Corbin Burns. No, is he not? He is. Yes. He's very good. Um, he's uh, probably, well, that's a, actually, this is a, that's a question for a different podcast, but you know, in the new CBA, if you win the Cy Young, you, it ups your minimum salary. And the kind of people think that's kind of like the Corbin Burns rule, you know, because he was on a minimum contract and won the Cy Young and he would, there's a, there's bonuses for different things. And apparently instead of making like 800 grand, he would be making like 6.8 million this year to which I'm sure the brewers are like, Oh, he would be under the old CBA or something. Yeah. I don't know if I, I think he was, I think poor Corbin was just a year too soon. I don't think he gets any of that. I think it starts next year. Like, well, I and how, win how, the stuff how, this year to qualify for the bonuses well, next year. And how frequently would a pitcher on a minimum salary be winning a Cy Young anyway? Well, if you can't get, um, if you win it in your first five years, chances are you're going to be on a minimum salary. Okay. So. Oh, yeah. I still think, right. I think it would have been more fun, more festive had the uh, Brewers started Corbin Burnson. At pitcher today instead of Corbin Burns. He's got. We've seen him. He's got baseball chops. Good old Roger. That's Dorn. true. Yeah, Roger Dorn. Yeah, I missed the obvious baseball reference. I go. I go right to LA Law. I go to the origin story. In the, in the Major League movie deep dive, which is also a podcast on this fine podcast network. Listen to it. It's a good one, kids. Uh, you Dial will find out that there is a there's a key double in the playoff game that um, Roger Dorn hits. And the the shot they use is actually Corbin. He actually he was very proud of himself. He smoked. Got a hold of one and with a wood bat. And he the thing he joked about later was he he was just glad he remembered to run. He's like, because you know you're up there, you're swinging, and you're just waiting to hit a good one. And a lot of times an actor will ruin the take by hit, getting a hold of one, but they don't run. And then you're like, well, we can't use that, or at least we can't use a good shot of it because you just stood there watching it. You know, you're supposed to be 
playing a game, and Corbin apparently got a hold of it and took off. And so, that's shot what, yeah. you see. They also said that the Dennis Haysbert actually hit a couple of those home runs. Really? Yes. Big man. Now Dennis they may Haysbert. have they may have exaggerated the distance on a couple of them because Serrano was supposed to hit the ball so far, but they said there's at least two home runs in the movie that Dennis actually hit. That's pretty. I cool. have to assume Dennis Haysbert uh, at least played high school baseball. Oh. It's not an easy. It's not an easy thing to do, even if you're naturally. Yeah, of course, uh, athletic. famously, uh, Charlie Sheen home. took steroids. <laughs> Is that <Yeah>. true? Yes. <laughs> that tracks. And they, um, they, the only thing they cheated with Charlie was in some of the shots they moved the mound up. I think so it was can, only he... when they shoot him from behind the catcher, because you can't really tell, and then the ball, you know, the ball gets on the gets on the batter faster. But he really could throw. But he decided he wanted to, you know, he claims he was thrown in the 80s. Um, I don't know. You know, making a few trips from uh, from, Charlie, from Holly. Charlie's pharmaceutical cabinet is pretty. Well, I'm wondering how if he ever uh, was compelled to make a few trips from Hollywood uh, up the coast to Oakland to hang out in the uh, Probably, in the athletics well, clubhouse. What year was then. it? Yeah, right. Because he, yeah, he had, that traveling show hadn't, had, uh, hadn't gone to St. Louis yet, so. Right. Wait till they came to Anaheim, I guess. Um, was that the movie? There's a Charlie Sheen movie. I don't think it was that one because I think it, it was. <laughs> he was. He was. Uh, he was having girls were coming in to spend a little time with him, and they were passing each other on the highway. That couldn't have been Milwaukee because it's too big. You wouldn't. They wouldn't notice each other. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, you mean on the set? I'm sorry. No, like yeah, coming, no, coming to visit or him like, on the shoot. I forget, maybe it was. It might have been right. like. It might have been like Young Guns. They were out in the because middle of nowhere. And I suppose you see, the girls. I mean, were, the girls were seeing each other as they were driving by. Like they would see the yeah. car coming at them and be like, "That son of a bitch!" That's, I know well, that. That's for Charlie. And just to fill anyone who may have missed that particular deep dive, or I think we also brought it up before, it's that was, of course, those scenes that you see in Major League that purportedly take place in Cleveland Municipal Stadium uh, were, in fact, filmed in a hot-ass summer uh, at Milwaukee County Stadium. So all those dudes were hanging out up up, up there. And it was because uh, Ohio had uh, was a union state, and it would cost twice as much to shoot in <laughs> In the actually, they they only they only did exteriors, and then famously the scene where um, Jake he thinks he's alone, and he it's right before the opener, like the day before, and he stands at home plate, and he like does a little play by play, and he swings an imaginary bat, and he starts to run the bases, and he turns around, and um, Willie and Ricky are standing there going like, "Woo, you got all of that one." That one's actually they shot that was when they were shooting the like the the scenic stuff in Cleveland. Otherwise sure. they didn't use, they never took a full crew to, because it would cost. Yeah. Too, too expensive. Uh, Cleveland, Ohio. That's and then in spell. Major league two. It's uh, they're in Baltimore. If they, they shoot in Baltimore. Yeah. Camden apparently filled in for the Jake. Even though they need Peter Angelos, Peter Angelos famous pro labor. Well, maybe that wasn't an issue for them. labor owner um yeah and then you of course he, know that to bring this movie stuff back to uh the cubs pete crow armstrong 
Right. The, uh, the, the, son, the, the, the result of the Sheryl Crow, Lance Armstrong tryst from so many years ago. Yep. Uh, or his parents were both actors. They were, uh, they were both on heroes together, but his mom played Timothy Busfield's, um, well, she played the mother of the kid who managed the twins in little big league who then dated Timothy Busfield. That's Pete Crow Armstrong's mom. For real. Yeah, so who knew? She she got to pretend to be the mother of a uh, major league manager, and she really is right. the mother of who a guy who might be a major league outfielder. Right. And the character herself was married to uh, a person, uh, the actor, of course, who may someday could play a Chicago Sun-Times right. columnist. Right. So it all comes full circle. Yeah. Ah, that's great. All right. Um, so why, if you made it this far... Um, <laughs> You're like, are they ever going to spin the wheel? Congratulations. Okay. They're talking about movies. Okay. They've already talked about Major League. Yeah, we know. It's in, it was shot in Milwaukee. Um, okay, so you can uh, sign up for the Pointless Exercise uh, newsletter at pointlessexercise.com. And you can, of course, sign up for this po- fine uh, podcast uh, there as well. So uh, last week we uh, we got to relive the glory days of the uh, – of the 1995 Cubs, a team that I'm sure the 2022 Cubs have emulated themselves after. Just it's, hang uh, on it, by for dear it life tracks. at the end that of the Cubs, season. That, that Cubs team did win their opener in Cincinnati, but and they did not get eliminated till the second to last day. So, so far, that's that's the track. That's the course we're on. Yep. It seems be a, pretty obvious. It's going to be a very exciting summer in Chicago with our exciting baseball team. So we've got. So you said last week we were halfway. Yeah, or was last we were week the, was last week halfway plus one. Yeah, seventeen weeks in, fifteen weeks to go. Fifteen, 15 weeks, 15 seventeen weeks seasons in, fifteen seasons to go. Uh, we still have a lot of the eighties on this eight on this wheel, and uh, yep. not a lot of nineties. Only two years in the nineties are left. Ninety three and ninety. So let's uh, let's spin the wheel and see what exciting Cub team we're going to remember today. I'm going to guess it's one in the 80s, just for the odds of it. I'm looking pretty good as it stops. Oh, boy. Oh, 1982. This would be the, like the second Cub team that I uh, actually remember. Excellent. I look forward to some of the start, – start digging in that uh, – I don't know if it's cerebral cortex or wherever your memory is to, to flesh out a few because that's uh, – yeah. That's, All right. So, that's uh, as season. always, we start. You, you right off the top of your head, five fun facts about the 1982 Cubs. Trumpets glare as we usher in a whole new era in Chicago. Tribune Company ownership, and more significantly, Dallas Green, uh, the general manager. Fact number one: on opening day um, in Cincinnati, newly uh, acquired Cubs second baseman Bump Wills hits a home run on the second pitch of the season. Did I say that was off of Mario Soto? Uh, it was in Riverfront. Was it a changeup? Was it? Didn't he only throw uh, changeups? I don't know. He was pretty good for a while, uh, but Bump was right, ready right. for he him. He was famous. Uh, famous that for the day, changeup. That day would also be the first time that uh, former White Sox announcer Harry Carey would be heard announcing a Cubs mm. game. It would also. I'm, I'm just going to focus it on this. We'll get it out of the way. There's a lot that happened in 82 that really set the course for some interesting stuff. But fact number four, also the debut at third base 
Ryan Sandberg, yep. newly acquired. A lot of newly acquired people. And I'm just going to say trivia uh, for all you trivia mavens out here might know this answer. Uh, for the first time since sometime in the mid-70s, Rick Russell was not the opening day starter in Cincinnati. But it was, in fact, the man for whom Rick Russell had been traded um, uh, from the Yankees, uh, Doug Bird, who would get the victory in a rain-shortened opener. And uh, we'll just start there and I guess go chronological or whatever, but we're opening day. Hey, t- today's opening day, we're right? Gonna, so, so we're going to do all 162. Right. right. I do have a memory of the second game of the season, and then maybe we'll let the chips fall. There are a lot of comebacks. Fergie, I mean, we'll get to them all. I'll let, I'll let you order it. Order, order it around. Oh, yeah. Let, well, let's start with the – you might as well start with the opener. Um, I, I'm going to tell you that I was 10 – so what would I be? Uh, I think it was a fourth grade. What were you? You were a year behind me. So uh, I was already able to uh, coax a day off of school. Like I, you know, I was a good student. I was never sick. So uh, I, you know, my parents would help let that one slide. And so I was excited because I'm an idiot kid. Cubs are coming off consecutive uh, absolute um, ass seasons. We covered 1980 when they lost 98 games and fired their first year manager after half the season. And then 81 was arguably worse. And yet it didn't deter a young uh, Michael Donahue. Part of that, uh, uh, my optimism, aside from just the natural ignorant optimism that we have when you start the season was that the aforementioned changes. Even I, my dad was excited. Uh, There was such a malaise there in the late seventies and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, since it had been a decade since the DeRocher era Cubs, uh, there was a disinterested Wrigley ownership that really had run its course. And so Tribune comes in and they came in guns a blazing. We've talked so much about these nineties teams, which was a different, what I kind of referred to as a, a Tribune two, a second sort of a, a shift fundamental and how they ran things, but they came in and they came in pretty strong and it was exciting. So we had the big free agent signings. Fergie comes back after, you know, uh, being gone for eight or nine years, they signed Bill Campbell. The Cubs are making free agent signings, uh, you know, right away in Dallas. Fucking dealing, so in '80 it was exciting. They show up on opening day. They got the blue pajama tops, like that's new. You know, they uh, prior to that they had the 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 light blue, dark pinstripe uh, uniforms. This and uh, this is an awful uniform. Which ones? The the <laughs> pajama tops? No, they're not great. The, but the the light the, blue, the, the, light the blue Billy Buckner ones, terrible. right? I always think of Billy Buckner am, with those ones. I'm I'm anti powder blue. If, powder blue. If you also wear. I don't like powder blue pants. Like I think a good look is the um, the Royals have a nice powder blue jersey, but they wear them with either their grays or their with the gray pants or the white pants, and it looks nice. But the powder blue pants, it's a leisure suit, and then the Cubs with the pinstripes made it even worse. Yeah, so. yeah. So the ditch those. Uh, Doug Bird shows up. Bump Will shows up. These are all new acquisitions. Uh, they've got these blue tops. So that's ex- everything's exciting. And again, I'm a kid. I, I'm staying home from school, and I'm also I'm in full geek mode already at ten. I've got some sort of a cassette recorder, and I'm already so into the game. I've learned how to keep score. I'm gonna fucking do my own play by play. Even though Harry Carey is about to do his first Cubs game, but I just you know I was so into it. I'm pressing record, and I'm like, here we are, first pitch by Soto. It's a ball. And then, you know, criticize, I criticize professional broadcasters today who have horrible home run calls. They're somehow caught off guard. But I got to tell you, there's 10-year-old Huey doing the call. Here's the 1-0 from Soto. And Will 
swings and knocks it out. And I just like froze. I was like, <laughs> I, I couldn't even make the call. And then I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I should be listening to Harry Carey. He just got here. I'm like, and then I ditched the recording and listened to Harry for the rest of the game. Well, that's too bad. I was hoping that you had the recording and we were going to play clips of it. <laughs> the one oh from soto will switch will uh swings and it's a drive and i'm going out of my i wasn't yelling or screaming I, mean, I was just like so like this can't be happening he's actually do, hit a home run on the first did you do a pregame show too because you know <laughs> if this was the opener if the opener was in cincinnati in 1982 this was the first game of the season it was and they oh, had the stupid 100%. parade and they did all this stuff because Cincinnati went to baseball openers with basically the Iowa caucuses. They had just declared that they got to go first every time, and they threw a fit when Major League Baseball started. Dane Some, to sometime in the mid nineties, send them on the I road think. or schedule them at like or tell them were, you got to go at one o'clock because the Yankees are going first. And they yeah, just, sometime Marty in the Bremen mid to late nineties, they, they they lost that sometime mid to the late nineties. Maybe Marge shot uh, expressing impatience at, at a dying John McSherry accelerated that in ninety six. But I know that in ninety four, uh, for the first, I feel like the first time ever, there was a Sunday night lifter. It was still in Cincinnati, but it was the Cardinals Reds. They were losing their grip on that by the mid nineties. But you are absolutely right. They had this stupid ass tradition for a century or whatever. They it was based on some argument that they were the oldest continuous league, but. I don't believe that the Cincinnati Reds go as far back to 1876 that the Cubs do. It's some nebulous argument, whatever. Uh, but it is a fact that bump wills. Um, so, yeah, it, it, without even having to worry, without having Internet to see what other games are going on, having to worry about any of that, you knew it was the only game going on that day. And so it was the first, the second pitch of the season, newly acquired Cubs second baseman bump wills uh, hits it. Uh, out of the park. And 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 I did do a pregame show by the way cuz my dad worked at Z- used to work at Zenith although he didn't in 1982. So, you know, I had a garage full of uh Zenith televisions that I would dish out and do my own version of the uh, le- you know, the leadoff man. So, yeah, like a video wall in the in the garage. Okay. All tuned one of four <laughs> a, channels. A Danley garage no less. <laughs> um Yeah, so Doug Bird, he went 7 innings. Uh, allowed only five hits. Uh, he walked two. How many do you think he struck out in seven innings? Uh, you're laughing. Someone say three? No, one. Okay. So he was, you know, ground ball, pitching a contact, moving along. Um, the only two other Cubs pitched because the game ended in the eighth. But um, Lee Which Smith, means... Lee Smith was the setup man, and uh, he. He pitched two thirds of an inning. He gave up a run, and then uh, Willie Hernandez got the save. Okay. I don't know if they had a clearly defined closer going in. I do know that Bill Campbell was one of the big signings. It was exciting, and he, you know, he'd been around six or seven years with the Twins and Red Sox, and he was one of the, you know, that early crop of, you know, closers. But uh, Smith would eventually make it clear. I think Smith had his greatest statistical season in '82. So this for people who are like, well, Lee Ely was the manager, so are you guys gonna play the rant? No, nope, rant's that'll a year be, off. Yeah, we're not doing the rant. That's eighty three, uh, baby. Nineteen eighty three. This was this was Don't Lee worry. on his best behavior the whole season, yes. Yes. swearing and chewing out guys. And- Doing this. Yeah, I was I was excited like like coming home from school. To, you know, here, here you'd have to like listen to WBM. Did they hear? I heard the Cubs hired a new manager. And he used to, and my, my mom was trying to tell me, hey, he used to play for the White Sox. But who is it? I think he may have even played for the Cubs, but so, didn't yeah, know so, who he didn't know who he was when they hired him. But so Bump homered on the first pitch of the season. It was, like, was first pitch. Yes. Okay. Much like uh, Ian Hamp was, would uh, was, years later for the Cubs. 
but another Cub uh, homered on the second pitch of the second inning. Do you know who was that it was? Keith Mor- was it new Cub Keith Moreland? It was. It was Keith Moreland. Somehow Cubs were ambushing, as Jim Deshays would say. They were they were ambushing Mario Soto. Right, and there's Don Zimmer in the third base box. I mean, there might have been the seeds of some uh, some animosity that would fester two years later. But uh, and of course Zimmer. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I, I scratched that out of my ass. Zimmer came in with Fry in '84, yep. so scratch that from there. I don't know who the Cubs' third base coach would have been. Because Joey was finally sent packing. Good old Joey Amalfitano. Everything was everything was new. Everything was brand new in '82. So it was, you know, even as a ten-year-old kid, it was. Everybody was kind of excited. Building a new tradition was this slogan that Dallas Green had ushered in, and uh, you know, got off to a good start. So, of course, that Ryan Sandberg made his first. It was not his major league debut. He had played a few games for the Phillies in 81. Uh, but he made his Cub debut that day. And he famously got off to a red-hot start. Um, I'm not sure you know what the meaning of red-hot is. Of course I do. He was... Uh, uh, let's see, he was... Uh, he didn't get a hit for about a week. He was old for his first at least 19... And then, uh, oh no, yeah. Then he got one hit. Not sure which at bat in that game. It was at Wrigley. I remember seeing it on TV. And let's see, he got him. Uh, let's see. So he was one for his first thirty, at least. And he then got two hits in a game on the seventeenth of April, and then he just took off. And. Uh, was it was actually from then on. probably give a little bit of credit to Leelia for just sticking with him. We were all rooting for him. He was a good looking kid. You know, the Cubs, uh, everything was, you know, I guess everything was new. He was new. You know, he looked like a ball player and he proved to be, it took a few years till he, you know, he did become a superstar, but he, he felt like he was going to be serviceable. He's probably hitting into some bad luck. Um, but I remember how excited Harry was when he finally got a hit. Yeah. So after going, uh, one for 30, he then went 15 for his next 49, a 306 with a 469 slug, and got his batting average, which had been uh, a, a exciting 033. He finished April uh, about where he always finished April <laughs> at 203. He was a that's notorious, actually might notorious, have been pretty good for him. Uh, yeah, a notoriously slow starter, as it as it proved to be. Yeah. One of the things I always loved about it was like, oh, you know, these guys, you know, it's tough. They get here, they got a hit in cold weather. It's like, um, isn't that what it's going to be like in the playoffs? Shouldn't Although San- Sandberg sh- performed in the playoffs, yeah, though. he was fine. And it is, I, it's different. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a it sucks. Dry, it's it a sucks. Cold. I, you know, I I didn't go to the game today. I originally was. I was going to have uh, my cataracts, and they, I got it pushed back. And I decided that's fine. I'm not, you know, already gave up my ticket, and I was content even while following the game and hearing the excitement. Uh, cold as fuck out there, and it's like you wonder about the guys playing out there. It is different between April and October. If it's like this in October, there, there is something different, even if it's forty degrees. Yeah. Well, the so. Well, unless you're, uh, uh, remember, Jorge <laughs> Soler dressed for the playoffs. 
Yes. Like, <laughs> my dad like, still uh, talks like, about like that. Like Ralphie's little brother and the Christmas story. <laughs> he couldn't hope put he his arms down. Hope he doesn't die for a ball. He's not going to be able to get up. Um, I did say that I have a memory of, of the second game, and I have to bring it up just because it's going to invoke a name that we've rarely mentioned. Uh, I just Again, I'm in every game. Second game was a night game, so you know I, I go to school the next day or two days later, and I just remember two names from the second game, uh, and it's not going to be in baseball reference, but the starting pitcher, again, new guy, uh, recovering alcoholic, Dickie Knowles. And Dickie Knowles, uh, I think if he was known for anything, but then he, he had a World Series ring. He had pitched for Dallas Green when Green was the, the Phillies manager in 1980. He pitched in the World Series and got attention for apparently throwing a little too close to uh, George Brett. And, uh, you know, it got a little tense in the World Series. At some point in the game, Dickie Knowles threw a little bit too close to Reds legend Paul Householder. Yes, I see and, it right uh, here. Bench is almost cleared, and that's uh, that's it. Uh, we can move on from April, but uh, well, you know the uh, the Reds. Happen. This is perfect too. So the opener, they had fifty one thousand fans in beautiful uh, Riverfront Stadium. Game two, uh, ten thousand. <laughs> well, we're averaging thirty thousand a game. Yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> but the Reds had some some interesting names. Um, how about this? Johnny Bench playing third base. And replaced late in the game by Wayne Krenchicki. Uh Paul Householder was in right field. Bruce Berenyi was the starting pitcher. Future Matt in 84. Herman Barranca pinch hit in the game. Got nothing. So just a lot of good names. Uh, Paul Householder was also one of the three guys on one of the early tops future prospects. I want to say the 81 set. The ones with the ball caps. Um so pitched in the so Dickie Dickie went five and two thirds, four hits, only gave out two runs. He also struck out one. <laughs> so through two starts, the Cubs starting pitchers had two strikeouts. Uh, he was he was relieved by uh, famous Cub uh, relievers Dick Tidrell, Bill Campbell, Willie Hernandez, and the most famous of them all, Herman Segelke. Or Segel, how do you even say Herman's last name? Can't help you there, Andy. I don't know. That... Uh, how long did Herman? Uh, I don't know why you don't remember Herman. Uh, Herman's career consisted of three games. Yeah. Uh, I think I went to bed. He was a first-round draft pick of the Cubs in 1976. Wow. Yeah, I would have gone to bed probably, so I would have missed uh, that for sure. So, but I knew all those other names, obviously. I, oh, I forgot God. that Dick Hidro oh, no. was still there in 82. Now, I don't know if you've if I've talked about my – I have an inexplicable hatred for Ken Landro. I don't know why. I just – I never liked him. Ken, because he had an X at the end of his Probably. name, maybe? He was one pick ahead of Herman Sigelke, because otherwise I'm sure he would have – he would have been the Cubs' number one pick. Uh, taken right after Herman, Steve Trout by the White Sox. Would be a Cub a year from uh, the oh, Listen to this. Season. This is a who's who. The 15th pick in the first round, 1976, Leon Durham. My guy from the Cardinals. the Cardinals. 16th pick, Pat Tabler of the Eagles, um, also an 82 club. Let's pause, right? We got time for a quick Pat Tabler story? Yeah, because he fits because he's, he's on this team. He was supposed to be, he was supposed to make the team, uh, but for the last minute, acquisition of bump wills which apparently pissed pat tabler off so 
Uh, if it wasn't for Dallas Green, I don't even know who he got for Bump Will or who he gave up for Bump Wills. But Tabler, of course, was a hot Yankee prospect, as you just sort of confirmed. At least he started off as a as yeah, a, a highly touted first round draft pick, and. I remember it was a rumor for a while. I remember my brother like talking up Pat Tabler. It was like, you know, making making the rounds that the Cubs might get this Pat Tabler sometime during the 81 season. Uh, and they fi- it finally went through after like a week of everyone talking about it years before the internet. And word, word was around town that Pat Tabler, this hot prospect, would uh, be with uh, with the Cubs. And, um, and they did get him, and he may have even come up in 81. But in 82, uh, everyone thought he was going to, you know, be at least be on the roster if you're not the starter. Uh, but they didn't want to, you know, they had junior Kennedy. And of course, you know, and you got junior Kennedy. Do you remember junior Kennedy, Andy? I just, uh, I remember the name. I don't really remember. There are a lot of Kennedys playing baseball around that. It seemed the Cubs former general manager the year Bob. before uh, was Bob Kennedy. And his son was Terry, who was mm-hmm. a catcher for the, you know, Cardinals and played against the Cubs in both of their yes. NLCS of the eighties, but so, junior Kennedy, who and I only since I've gone down this rabbit hole of the second baseman and mentioned Junior Kennedy, will just remember at one point it might have been in the '82 season, so it'd be relevant. Uh, it could have been '83, but I think it was '82 when Bill Buckner almost got in a fisticuffs with Gary Carter when uh, they sort of. Yes, and Buckner actually took his glove and kind of gave the like what hockey players do, <laughs> kind of shoved it in Carter's face when players were kind of all all around them. And I just remember the the, the strangest thing I remember this Steve Stone and Harry's like, "Whoa, what's going on?" And then and then Steve Stone, went, I you know Harry, I wouldn't want any, I wouldn't want to mess with Junior Kennedy. He's a street fighting man. And I was like, "What the hell is that?" Like, it's a Rolling Stones song. I knew that. <laughs> I'm like, so Junior Kennedy is like, what, some like hillbilly, he's got like a switchblade in his back pocket. I don't know like what was meant by that. Apparently Junior Kennedy, according to Steve Stone, some real fucking badass, but he was just a skinny dude in a mustache and just an average second baseman that rode out uh, the 81 season. I don't think he was with him before 81, but from Arvin, uh, California, also also a first round pick. Uh, Really? Was he a Cardinal? 14 years before. Uh, he picked oh, by the Orioles uh, and played for the Reds and the Cubs. Okay, Reds, I think, is where he probably got most of his playing time before the Cubs. Um, apparently uh, stabbed a man in, to death in some 4 a.m. bar. Yeah, uh, I don't know why Steve Stone was so freaked out about Junior Kennedy. But uh, but going into the, the opener, the Bump Wills trade happened right before opening day. You want to know who Bump uh, was traded for? Uh, in just one second, I was just going to say that Junior was going to be the opening day second baseman, and Pat Tabler was had made the roster until this trade in which uh, the the Cubs dealt who for Bump Wills. I'm not going to guess. Paul Seamall. Yeah. For not just for Bump, for Bump and um, a player named later. Oh, it was it was in cash. It was a player named later who turned out to be Paul Mirabella and Bump and some cash for Paul Seamall. I remember Paul Mirabella from my Tops cards, uh, Toronto Blue Jay left-hander, I want to so say. So now, Bumpwell is, of course, the son of borderline Hall of Famer uh, and former all-time stolen base leader, Maury. Um, and he yep. was also, and- Bump also, for everybody was first-round draft picks back then. Um, went to Arizona State, <laughs> sixth pick of the draft uh, by the Rangers, and had played for the Rangers for... Um, Six years, five years, before coming to the Cubs. And he would play for the Cubs in 1982. And then... Japan. He went to Japan after that. 
well, and oh, also yeah, the first year that I uh, collected tops cards was 78, which was the cursive one. 79, I didn't collect as much before I really got into it in 80. But in 79, uh, I actually, as a seven-year-old, uh, uh, opened up a pack and there was a Bump Wills trading card in which it said that he played for the Blue Jays, although he was clearly, um, you know, in a batting stance wearing a Rangers uniform. So that always, uh, I remember my brother saying, oh, that, that could be a valuable card before I, you know, wrapped it in a rubber band in which it's still, still been in sconce for the last 50 years. Bump played for two seasons for the Hank U Braves. You're welcome. Um, where he played with such notables as Kazuhiko Ishimini, Yoshihiro Iwamoto, uh, Kosuke Fukudome, Tomohiro Kinoshita. What? Oh, he, you're joking, right? Yeah, I just worry. Because Kosuke's so old. Well, I started I to wonder. If, joke oh, that he I know, was but I was also on the. T- I, I slid that one in. I was wondering if somehow Bump Wills was the sage old that ended up, but I suppose we would have heard about that. And he was playing as a 50 year old. 25 years later when yeah. Kosuke word came have, to play for the Cubs. Right. Word would have gotten back to the States. Now it has been 14 years since he debuted for the Cubs. Kosuke still playing in the Japanese league. So, so there you go. Okay. So, uh, the, the 82 Cubs, um, the bones are there, are starting to be assembled for the '84 Cubs. Jody Davis is the catcher. Um, of course, the- not the op- not the opening day catcher though, because you know Dallas Green was really trying to see if Keith Moreland could still catch. He oh, couldn't. Yeah, he couldn't. I was a Jody fan in that department. Keith Moreland came- listed as utility and Baseball Reference for that season. Uh, but Jody, he ended up catching 130 games for the Cubs. Um. Buckner, who would get traded for Dennis Eckersley. Not for two more years, though. Right. Um, Sandberg was there, although he's playing third instead of second. And that brings up a whole – my whole theory as a kid. Because, you know, the Cubs couldn't couldn't find a third baseman. They kept looking. And, of course, We've, they went we, they got Ron Say, and that allowed them to move uh, Sandberg to second, where I guess he was fine defensively at second base. I guess he's okay. I guess it kind of worked out. I remember as a kid thinking, though, like, I, I, he clearly would have been a gold glove third baseman. He just would have been. Sure. It would have been easier at the time to find a second baseman, a competent second baseman. It probably would have been. Well, especially because I always felt like Sandberg was the cream of the crop, but it felt like during the 80s, and this is a little bit more after 82, but and none of these guys would be memorable now, so it doesn't mean they suck. They're all kind of pretty decent, but you might remember, like, Bill Doran of the Astros. Maybe they did suck. I don't know. Ron Oyster, o- Oyster of the Reds, who probably played in those first two games against the Cubs in 82. Johnny Ray of the Pirates. Uh, the Mets had guys that sucked but were frustratingly, like, you get in your nerves, like Wally Backman and, you know, Tim Tuffle, who, you know, broke your hand with a home run ball, I believe. But um Right, and then Phillies had Juan Samuel, who was rookie right of the year in '84. I, I can see the ball from here. There yeah, there the Tim Tuffle ball. Uh, Juan Samuel of the Phillies in '84. I remember. I remember thinking that the NL East, which is the division in which the Cubs resided uh, for years, certainly in the '80s, um, had a like above-average second baseman in general. So, I, to your point about it had Sandberg stayed at third. You know, was there enough in, of an abundance? And, you know, Dallas Green was certainly shrewd enough. Probably could have plugged somebody in there. But on the other hand, uh, I got to tell played, you. I don't, you just played Dave Owen there. 
I have to tell you how taken aback I am at how cynical a, what is it, a 10, 11-year-old Andy Dolan was at Ron. I fucking, I loved having Ron. I know he was a former Dodger, but the Dodgers won. As annoying as they were, we rehashed, you know, Bill Russell and, like, that's Garvey and all that team. I didn't really hate say, like, those guys. Or, I didn't hate say. Uh, yeah, I knew he was old and bad, but, like, I didn't know. I don't know how, like, I, I, there, you know, and he did. He, you know, he contributed when they did win the division. Um, and, you know, he was. I mean, the, he was kind of washed up. The Dodgers cut him loose after, a, you know, 12 years or something. But, um, yeah, that's an interesting alternate history because I do think there were there seemed to be a lot of good second basemen around then that they could have plugged in. Um. Let's see. Yeah, Le- another uh, Leon Durham sorry, was playing right field. Yeah, I was going to say another oddity was that Sandberg was playing third, and Leon Durham, who most people probably associate as a first baseman, was an all-star. Yeah, he had a great fielder that year. Oh, That's part of the reason I loved him. 22 homers, 90 RBIs, 312, 388 on base, and a 521 slug. How many stolen bases? Uh, 28. How many times did he get caught? Uh, 15. 14. Okay. Sandberg stole 32, and he got cut 12 times. It was kind of borderline. Bump well, Pretty bump, good back then. Bump stole 35, got cut, cut 10, so that's acceptable. And Bill Buckner stole 15 bases, was only caught five times. Crafty. Probably a couple know. delayed steals, maybe. Like 15 of them, probably. <laughs> Here's the best one. Uh, Keith Moreland. Uh, he got caught stealing six times. How many successful stolen bases do you think he had? I'm going to say three. He had none. He was 0 for 6. <laughs> <laughs> What the hell, Keith? Uh, Those must have been like two outs. I, I'm wondering because you know, Keith was a smart. He was a pretty smart ball player. I'm sure they were wondering. just botch hitting runs. Poor Keith. Oh, that's it. I'm sure that's he got it. picked off six times. He just took off for second. Like screw it, I'll just try. To, I'll just go no, to second. I I'll get botched a, hit and runs. I'll get a caught ceiling instead of a pickoff. It'll look better in the box score. I think he nailed it. Um, boy, the Cubs were running fools back then. Uh, Larry Boa, eight of eleven. He got caught also three times. New, so newly acquired. Mm-hmm. Steve Henderson, successful six times in 11 attempts. Uh, it's not worth it, Steve. You got to stop. Gary Woods uh, was hitting 500. Three, he was three for six. Still on bases. <clears throat> Jerry Morales won one for three. Junior Kennedy, the aforementioned one for Kennedy, one for five. So today... Uh, As a team, the Cubs stole 132 bases, got caught 70 times. They would have <laughs> literally been better not trying to steal a single base. Also. But I think that's largely... I mean, the Cubs are not that good of a team. Some teams probably rated much higher, but for the most part, that just is emblematic of how different it is. Today, Rebecca uh, got caught stealing, and I'm, I'm thinking how rare it is to, like, the attempt of a stolen base is... And even rarer to get, it seems to get caught. Like, oh, yeah, it's uh, no doubt. It's when I, we were it, kids. I was almost. Everybody sh- ran a lot. It was just a thing, and it took a long time for for some egghead to crunch the numbers and be like, the you need you need to be successful at least two thirds of the time, or over the course of the season, you're not doing yourself any favors. And that wasn't the, they didn't think that. I way. thought it was seventy five percent, but yeah. Oh, no, you're probably you're probably. Either what, but you're right. There's a there's a there's a point where the the risk isn't worth the or the the reward isn't worth the risk. I had to look up Steve Henderson because I just wanted to confirm that he was in fact uh, acquired for Dave Kingman. And, and yes, I am correct. That was a one on one. So you know, we I mean, we we, we went at great lengths about Kingman. Yeah, so he was. 
you know, Henderson was a, was actually, he might've been a first round pick, right? I just had him up for a second. I want to say the Reds drafted him. Um, but again, no. like you say, every fifth, he's not. a fifth round pick of the Reds All right. from Prairie so View A&M. Um, here's a, here's an interesting story. So Larry Cox, uh, was a backup catcher. He caught two games for the 82 Cubs. He also was, he's more famous, he was the last guy cut on the 1980 Miracle on Ice, um, the Olympic hockey team. I'm thinking it maybe it might have been a different Larry Cox. <laughs> but I think it was, I think it's the same guy. A major league catcher. He was 34 years old in 1982. So you think, they, you think there was a 32-year-old trying to make the uh, 80 Olympic team? Probably. I uh, yeah, Larry Cox had a mustache. That's all. I'm you know, pretty it's a, sure. It's a big part of the movie Miracle because, of course, uh, Herb Herb Brooks has to cut him, and Herb most famously had been the final cut of the 1960 U.S. Ooh, Olympic hockey team, and they also yeah. went on to win the gold medal. And there was poor Herb, and Herb likes to tell like to tell a story that um, he watched the gold medal game at home on his couch with his dad. And then the Americans won, and Dad got up and walked out and said, well, it looks like they cut the right guy. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Dad. That can't be real. No, it, it probably was. Herb was a prick. I'm sure his dad was a prick, too. Yeah. Yeah, so Fergie, um, he came back, and he won 14 games for the bad 70, Not bad. 73 and 89 Cubs. Mediocre. Compared, especially compared to the last two yeah. seasons, the ship was headed in the right direction. And but that's still, not I just... mean, 39-year-old Fergie oh, yeah. went in 14 games. He, he lost 50. <laughs> but he had a 3-1-5 no, right. ERA. Um, it was set up, too, where, uh, you know, Doug Bird, as I said, was the opening starter. Fergie got the assignment at the home opener that year, and it was pretty cool. Like, all right, so there's like a segment of Cub fans, you and me, that our only direct experience with Fergie Jenkins is Fergie the second, right? And he was he was still a good pitcher. He was he started the home opener, and then as it turned out, he was the opening day starter in '83, which we can revisit that when we talk about it. Um, he got his 3,000 strikeout in '82, uh, which is kind of cool. I stayed up late, uh, even though. So what do we say in '80? Uh, so I'm like in the fourth grade. Uh, Gary in, Templeton was his was victim. In, right, San Diego, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got to stay up late. Uh, well, I, you know, any Cubs game I could stay up late, but uh, I remember staying up for that one. So Fergie got his 3,000 strikeout. And, uh, yeah, so it was fun because you'd hear stories. Like your older brother might have remembered old Fergie. Certainly my older brothers, my dad did. He was – everyone knows historically, you, know, you talk about Fergie Jenkins as a Cub, we're talking about this incredible run that he had from between, what, like 67 to 73. But, um, you know, there's this – carved out there's this like section of cub fans like us that got to see him and kind of enjoy him on his own terms which were you know almost like you know watching alan page for the bears compared to the vikings but uh you know i, I it was cool i kind of learned about the history and and he was still an effective pitcher he won 14 games for a 73 win team so here's an interesting we talked a little, you know, we talked about how the game is different stolen bases are different than it used to be the other thing that's different is strikeouts you know, players back then didn't like to strike out. Players now don't care. But you, every pitching staff now is full of guys who strike out well more than a batter an inning. 
The Cubs had 15 guys pitch for them in 1982. I guess a really small number. The Cubs, the current Cubs, have 14 guys on their pitching staff on opening day. The 82 Cubs used 15 pitchers all season. How many of those 15 pitchers struck out more than a batter an inning? Um, well, Lee Smith probably. Uh, two. None. Not a goddamn one of them. Not even Lee. Arthur. In uh, 1,447 innings, the 82 Cubs struck out 764 guys. To, to, just to compare that, Nolan Ryan struck out more guys than that by himself that year. So it wasn't not, necessarily not a sign of the time. Well, I mean, Ryan himself was an anomaly. No, I just looked up. Nolan struck out 250 guys in. So he struck out a third of the oh. entire number that the Cubs struck out. Still an anomaly. The Astros struck out almost 200 more guys than the Cubs there. Well, Ryan and Seaver, no, Ryan and Carlton and Seaver themselves were all themselves represented a shift in, um, you know, strikeout rates because they, uh, as a triumvirate, basically stormed Walter Johnson's record all around the same time. So, yeah, the Cubs were 10th in the 12 team National League in strikeouts. Pitcher strikeouts. Pitcher strikeouts. Batter strikeouts. They were. Eighth. Well, they had Billy Buckner. Yeah, they probably held their own. They were eighth. They were bottom half. Uh, Bill Buckner in 709 plate appearances, 657 at bats, struck out 26 times. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. And I'm yet, always, again, I'm what, always amazed to see that. Um, right. Well, we. Like I love Buckner. when you bring. When you bring it up, but then also Buckner, which kind of kind of blew my mind a little bit when we talk about 1980, may not have had as high of an on-base percentage as we would assume. I don't know what what was it in '82. It was, yeah, three, was, that, it was, was 342. There? He was um, he wasn't even. Bump Wills had a higher on-base, 347. Oh, Bump got on base. Yeah, Bump 272, 347, 377. He had 35 stolen bases. Uh, I, I remember one of my friend's dad uh, grouping Bump Wills and, and Glenn Mother Hubbard as just being absolute statues. As Because um, so I'm wondering, you look at those numbers, they're not terrible offensively. And maybe Bump Wills just couldn't play second base. He was yeah. sort of, he seemed sort of rotund. He didn't look anything, I mean, he he didn't look a whole lot like his dad. He had like a, I don't know. He must have been fast. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, he he stole bases, but he was uh I don't know what it was. I uh, I don't know why Bump Wills uh 724 OPS in 1982 for a second baseman ain't horrible. So the guy who so had the know. the guy who had the tr- the low on base percentage for as good a year as he had. I mean, we know he had off to a terrible start with Sandberg. He only had a 312 on base that year. Um but even after starting 1 for 30, he hit 271. Uh, he only slugged 372. Of course, that's before Jim Fry told him start hitting home runs, and then he did. That's right. That's right. the dullest story that Sandberg tells 14 times a year. And um, he scored 103 runs, by far and away the most on the team. Buckner was second with 93, and then nobody was anywhere close. Durant, Leon scored 84 times. It was poor Leon could only drive himself in 22 times, and he nobody else could drive yeah. him in. Part of the reason Leon Durham is my all-time favorite Cub is because, you know, this is really getting into, you know, our sweet spot as fans, is little kids when there's nothing else that matters 
in the world pretty much. You don't have a, you know too many concerns. Is that Leon, because of the rule in which you have to have at least one all-star, was the Cubs all-star, only all-star. You know, the, As a younger kid, I remember the excitement when Bruce Suter would just baffle these American League hitters. Um, who'd never seen his pitch before, you know, while pitching for, you know, for the Cubs. So there was always like Cub excitement in the all-star game, but like Durham kind of represented like my first experience. So here's a guy that we got and he looks like a badass, and we traded Suter for him and, uh, and he's pretty good. He's a left-handed hitter and he's fast and he's like, seems kind of unique and boom, he's the guy that we get to watch in the all-star game. Um, yeah. Leon was an all-star twice. He was also an all-star in 83. Um, yeah. Although he only played 100 games in 83. So he must have missed a lot. Like, he must have missed a lot. Last half of that season. Second half. Yeah. Um, funny man, Jay Johnstone. Um, only played in 98 games, only batted 269 times. He had 10 home runs for the uh, wow. two Cubs. 10 homers, 43 RBIs. He walked 40 times, only struck out 41. Um, let's see. He was... It was his uh, 16th season in the big leagues. He was 36 years old. Jay and he would be on the Cubs. Yeah, he was uh, through, through 84, where he famously... Um, Jim Fry hated him. When- and when the Cubs got Davey Lopes, they, they forced Johnstone out, former teammate with the Dodgers. I and, think um, they left him off the playoff roster, and yeah. Dallas went and told him, um, "I want you in the clubhouse." And he appointed him shower coach. His job after the games was to point out the showers to the other players. That was that was how Dallas justified keeping Johnstone around. Fry apparently he was Fry had no sense of humor. And, uh, so, well, Dallas was gruff too, but he was also real. So he he kind of liked Johnstone. Jay had that, played for this, him uh, in Philly, and he had purposely oh. brought him to the Cubs. Um, in fact, Jay, did he? It's not black, but he he tells the story in one of his many books. It must have been in '76. So he played for the Phillies for a while, from '74 to '70. Eight, then he went to the Yankees for a while. Uh, I think the, the the crossover with Green Green didn't become the manager till like seventy late seventy eight. I think yeah. Danny Ozark, but he was the farm director. So right. if Johnstone came up with the Phillies, then Green would actually have a very deep. He did. Relationship he came up with, with the with the Angels and then played for the White Sox for many years. Oh man, he was a total journey. Dallas liked him and wanted him on the team. Um, John, Jay was. Um, he was in the hunt to lead the National League in doubles one year with the Phillies. And in the last game of the year, he hit a ball that clearly could have been a triple, and he stopped at second because he wanted to add another double to this double total. <laughs> he also claimed that the next year, um, he, you know, the Phillies were out of it, and he didn't want, you know, everybody just wanted to go home. And he got put in the lineup that day. And he's like, oh. So he got himself... He got himself thrown out in the first inning and went home. <laughs> got him nice. Sammy Sosa. Smart. Sammy. All right, I'm done. Yeah, but he yeah, got an excuse. He didn't get, well, he couldn't play. He didn't just skip a game. Oh, I'm sorry, the ump told me I have to go home. I'm going to go home. You know, I think it's probably a good uh, a point here in this podcast to maybe dive into, like, what Dallas Green's influence really was, maybe for 
if there are some listeners who don't really, you, you know, didn't really live through it. Um, Cause you mentioned Jay Johnstone and like, that's a guy that like green probably kind of targeted for reasons that were specific to green. Like green came in with a plan. I mentioned earlier, this building a new tradition, which really sort of like upset certain uh, members of the fan base. My dad, not included. He was all fucking on board with, you know, sick and tired of this, you know, the, this absolute malaise that they were in. Uh, and Green came in with a lot of bluster. Uh, he was, you know, coming from an organization with Philadelphia, which, you know, he helped awaken after basically an entire 80-year existence of being uh, absolute ass. And was, in fact, after rising through the farm system and developing lots of players that he would later manage when he got promoted as the field manager and led Philadelphia to their first ever World Series in 1980, um, which was the culmination of just these players he developed, these players that he knew. And he himself, he was a lifelong Philly. He was from Delaware. He was drafted by the Phillies, but for a brief embarrassing period at the end of his career when he had to serve up a home run to Jimmy Pearsall in which Jimmy ran around the bases backwards, which I'm sure Green never forgot. He was a absolute lifelong Philadelphia Philly. And uh, But the Cubs with Tribune moving in, like I said, after this moribund franchise had really sort of bottomed out after 81, uh, they came in with a lot of flash. Uh, they bought the team. And they hired Green to run everything, basically. And he came in. He answered the fucking call. Like, he didn't, you know, he didn't second get, he didn't stumble. He didn't, you know, have a shitty initial press conference like Jerry Angela. Like, he he just, he hit all the notes. And he, but he did ruffle feathers. I mean, there was, there's a segment of the fan base that was content, just like there has been today and in recent years that, you know, like the status quo, even though it's really not very inspiring and, you know, as a kid, of course, I didn't know what, you know, a great team would be, you know, across all of Chicago sports at this point. It was just, you know, you root for the team that, you know, that you live around and and, and hope that lightning strikes. So Green comes in and he's got the swagger and he's got these connections with Philadelphia and he deals. He deals our guy, Mike Kroiko for Moreland. He deals, you know, Ivan Jesus to bring in a boa and, and convince, you know, Paul Owens, his successor in Philadelphia to, uh, you know, give him this unheralded shortstop, Ryan Sandberg, that, uh, I believe Philadelphia had long-term plans for maybe Julio Franco at short or something, you know, may have elected it, but whatever. Yeah, Green got lucky there, but he also, you know, knew, knew something about Sandberg. Um, you know, he, he, he picks up bump wheels. He's wheeling a deal. He's signing guys. Tribune gave him a checkbook. All of a sudden, this the Cubs are players in free agency, which was, you know, not a thing under, under Wrigley ownership. And he um, – uh, you know, he brings back Fergie, he brings Bill Campbell. And so uh, this is the first year. This is it. He, but the building the new tradition was a slogan that, that he brought. And he's plastered it on onto the, you know, the, the bleacher entrance uh, outside of, uh, you know, center field and, um, and, and, and started to drop hints that lights would be necessary. And that, that also, I think, you know, made certain people that were already sort of content a little bit uh anxious and eventually active but uh it, it was, it's exciting to think about I, I i've i've taken so much time over the last 20 years to give dallas green his due but this uh you know this was his his, his maiden voyage and it you know is as mediocre as they turned out to be in 82 he you know he definitely charted a course yeah there's the the nonsense uh 
story, you know, the retelling of the story that the uh, the the Sandberg trade that Ryan was like this prospect throw in. It's like no, it, he didn't. Dallas didn't trade for because he so had to have thirty seven year old Larry Boa. I mean, he was willing to give up Avanda Jesus to get Sandberg, and he needed a shortstop, and he got about, Boa. Yeah, there, there was about a five or six year. Boa was old ass, like you said. There's a five or six year difference between De Jesus and Boa, so that, that's kind of how I thought about it. Because this would also be if he was so committed to the great Larry Boa. This was also the year then that they used he used his very first draft pick on the greatest right. on the greatest Cub of all time, Sean Dunstan. Still, the only time the Cubs have had the first pick in the amateur draft in our lifetime, or ever. And there wasn't anybody. There was nobody that went like in the top five that would have been a better player than Sean. You know, no, no, no pitchers from Florida. No, who uh, managed to beat the Cubs like a drum every time he pitched against them his entire career. Just not in 84, though. No. Yeah. Who else besides Gooden was in that draft? Just Gooden. It doesn't matter. He was a divisional rival. But that's not Green's fault. And Dunstan was good, as you point out. And for a few years, he was really good. You know. Well, we just did a podcast where he basically was dragging the 95 Cubs down the stretch. And he was kind of an old man winning, by then. Winning that's games 13 years later. Left He's 31 right. years old. Yeah, that's right. He was. Well, let's, I yeah. got, I got a that, that, That's the other that's thing that Dallas Green ushered in. Part of this, part of this in. thing is what no, happened is. in the draft that year. We look it up now, and it's, it, it inspires some pretty funny uh, uh, names. But yeah, while you, while you search for that, it was just that was another exciting thing that happened in '82 is the Cubs had the first pick in the draft, and they get to draft this 18 year old kid out of Brooklyn that batted like 820 as a senior. Well, the first pick was Sean, and the second pick never played in the big leagues. The great Augie Schmidt. At the University happens. of New Orleans, who got drafted by the Blue Jays. College player. Uh, Jimmy Jones, a pitcher from uh, Thomas Jefferson High School in Dallas, was the third pick by the Padres. Didn't make it. Brian Olkers uh, was the fourth round pick by the Twins, or the fourth pick by the Twins. The fifth was Dwight Gooden. Uh, the sixth was Spike Owen of the Mariners. Dave's brother. Sammy Khalifa went to the was went seventh of the Pirates. Bob Kipper. Pirates. Got picked by the Angels, Dwayne Ward. Uh, by I believe Bob Kipper, Andy. I believe Bob Kipper. I might be wrong. I apologize. I may have pitched for Kishwaukee. Kishwaukee, uh, uh, Kishwaukee College. Yeah, if he didn't sign, he, he might, might have because he went to uh, Aurora. He was from Aurora Catholic. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely the guy uh, that played for Kishwaukee. There you go, Bob. In case you listen, got your name checked. Not Bob Nepper, no, who was Kipper. a very good pitcher. Bob Kipper. There's Bob Nepper. There was Al Nepper. Yes. Bob right. Kipper. <laughs> yeah. So Dwayne Dwayne Ward was probably the best player other than uh, other than Dwight and Sean. Dwayne Ward gets mentioned a week after the 1995 season, in which his name wasn't mentioned. But I want to say 95 was the year in which Dwayne Ward was trying to make a comeback as the Cubs closer, but uh, couldn't make the team out of spring training. So uh, White Sox first pick that year. Uh, Ron Carcaface. Carco, They're a former it, a former Cub manager is in this first round. Joe Girardi? No, no, no. Joe Girardi? No, yeah, no. He no. drafted by the Cubs, and he was. Yeah. If I can tell you the team, it'll give it away. Joe Girardi was not a Cubs manager. Duh. Sorry. No, not not yet. Anyway, who knows? 
You said former, yeah. not future. Who is the twenty fifth pick of the first round? Dale Spame. Oh Another boy. Boys. <laughs> and let's see the only other uh, Franklin Stubbs to the Dodgers Todd Worrell to the Cardinals Sam Horn oh. to the Red Sox I remember Sam Horn oh. Cubs did fine with Sean yeah they did they didn't draft Brian Olkers at least oh my god wow the top five between Dunstan and Gooden it's all ass just think if the, think how everything would have been different if the Twins had picked Gooden he wouldn't have gotten to been he wouldn't have become a coke act he'd have been like addicted to like Lutefisk or something Um, I'm pulling up the Cubs games, but I just remembered a game that we have to jump to so I don't forget. It's an epic game. And if we didn't discuss this, I'd be kicking myself. And it was a summer game. I'm going to find it. July, August probably. Late July, early August. Home game against the Dodgers. Oh, Uh, is it the the ridiculously long game? 21 innings. Oh, yes. Oh, I have a story about this. Good, we both do. All right, let's let's take our time with this. Um, anybody following at home can can refer to the game that was played. Well, there are a few. There's a 13 inning game earlier in the season against the Dodgers at Wrigley, but of course, this was in the days when uh, the Dodgers would come to Chicago twice. And I would refer you to a game that it actually began. I don't know how this works. I think it it began on Tuesday, August 17th. Um. At Wrigley Field, 120, because every game began at 120, although 1982 may have been the year in they which Dallas Green start, started sneaking in 305 games. Yeah, it's a Dallas Green invention, too. It also paved the way to night games, but also as a way to get maybe more uh, you know workers from the loop to cut out of work a little bit early and actually call it a full day and still yeah, I mean, the, make the, most of the, the game. Reason, the, the reason for the team-wise to do it was that Fridays tend to be – uh, first days after it wasn't just Fridays though, it, it, right? But they they okay. pretty regularly with the three hundred fives on Fridays, and that was to try to because the Fridays became a different the Fridays morphed into a different thing in the nineties. That was a two twenty start. The three hundred fives were sorry. meant to go to be right after they got back from a road trip, and they would okay. You know, it's about as late as they could start one without lights. And try to easily get in. They had a lot of suspended games because of that. Also, um, Lee Smith enjoyed the 305s um, because it was harder than hell to hit (laughs) by 6 o'clock because it was getting dark in there. Well, so I don't know then. That's a good point. This is like August 17th. I don't know. It doesn't say what time this game actually started, 120 or 305, unless there's uh, other info. Time of game 610, that's hours. Six-hour game. But of course, not in one day. It which was we'll get probably to. it was probably a well. That's a good question. Let's. Well, look at the number of innings. I it could have started at one twenty. So yeah, I, I fact check. I, I assumed it was one twenty. My memory memory serves that they they didn't. It was a Tuesday game. It ended beginning relatively of quickly, right when they started up the next day. Correct. So yeah, I would so guess. I would guess it was innings. probably a. I mean, they'd have been okay. playing until like eight o'clock. But it was and a even Tuesday. though you're like, well, it's summer. It's still gonna be like that. It gets dark the in there. Yeah, you can't. There's not. You, can't play you don't have direct light. You can't no. see shit. 
Yeah. You got Lee Smith, who's still in his prime. Uh, in fact, I think he had a great year, but yeah, firing in. So, all right, a couple things. On the first day on Tuesday, because this, this game was played over two days, just, you know, spoiler alert, Wrigley didn't have lights. So um, they, they don't get the game in. It gets suspended, which is a rule that you'd only see suspended games back then uh, for Cubs games. Other games that get rained out or washed out or rain shortened. Uh, only games at Wrigley Field would ever get suspended. What happened, and I'm going to find it so you don't have to. I know this happened on the on the Tuesday, late in the game, or maybe in extra innings. But Larry Baugh, with one or two outs, maybe one, on first base uh, with the Cubs a chance to win. So it's either in the ninth or at the end of the game. Uh, takes off from first base, and our guy, Leon Durham, uh, mashes one off the right field wall. Okay? Uh, and... Uh, Boa yeah, comes I, all the way around the bases. It. What inning? The bottom of the eighth. It's oh, tight. just the eighth. Yep. All right, so walk off. Yes. All right, could have been a normal game, but home plate umpire Eric Gregg can't yep. fucking allow that, and he calls Larry Boa out at the play. So it would not have been a walk off, but it could have been a game winner because it's the bottom of the eighth and it's the go ahead run. Yep. And Boa, you know, otherwise known for his calm, rational demeanor. Yeah. Um, right. Very, very chill guy. Uh, and of course not. Larry Bow is one of the Hall of Fame red asses. So uh, very predictably, uh, completely explodes, jumps up, gets right into Eric Gregg's face, gets ejected, I'm sure. Uh, can't confirm that. I don't know what happens if Elia comes out. It's just frustrating as hell. Cubs don't get it. Oh, well. They don't win the game in regulation. It goes to extra innings. All kinds of shit happens. And I'm watching this game. I'm watching this game. And this would happen This would happen two or three times a year, honestly. I don't think that's a hyperbole. But it would happen. And like you said, with a 3 o'clock game, so in 82, 83, after 83, I think, when they had more and more 3 o'clock games, it probably happened even more. Um, it, it got too dark to play. And so then they would have to resume, resume the next day to finish that game before they started the next game. Right. And so a couple things happened the next day. I'm going to do my, cause you, I know you've got a story unless it intersects, but I, I this was a week where my dad was off of work and we didn't take like big vacations. Cause we were like, you know, just not in that position at that point. And I remember he took us to a water slide somewhere near Elmhurst and we're listening to the car, the radio on the way home. And the next day, this game goes on and on and on. I don't know when they called it. I think it said in the, in the recap after the, uh, at the top of the 18th, it got called. So they played three, they played about an hour the they next played, day. Yeah, they played 10, right. So they played 10 more innings after the missed right. call. And I will say too, that on the Tuesday in the bottom of the 14th, Harry, and this is the first time I remember Harry saying, take me out to the ball in his first season saying, take me out to the ball game in the bottom of the 14th. Oh, yeah. So he had some, he had some fun with it. Um, and I, I believe he also did it. Or maybe he didn't because the Cubs had given up the lead at the top of the 21st. But going into the bottom of the 21st, I want to say, uh, or maybe it was the bottom of the 20th or the 19th, we're driving the car at one point. Vince Lloyd's on the radio, and he's announcing these play uh, all these changes. I think Jerry Royce comes into the game. And, yeah, it's the bottom of the 20th. It's still a tie game. And this is absolutely true. I remember I was sitting next to my dad in the car. We're listening to the game. My sister's in the back seat. And Vince Lloyd's announcing Jerry Royce is in the game. This guy moves here. He says, Ron, um, you know, uh, somebody goes here. And guess who's playing in left field? And my, I remember my dad just going, not Fernando. And as soon as he says it, Vince Lloyd, Fernando Valenzuela. 
and we just burst out laughing. And Fernando, who was actually like Rick Russell, I think kind of athletic for a fat guy. He was the defending rookie of the year and Cy Young award winner. He, he took the league by storm in 81 um, and 82 was still their top pitcher and uh, was not, you know, hadn't pitched the day, you know, too much before that, or too much after, was able to get into that game in left field for the last two innings. Jerry Royce, by the way, came in for the two innings. The Dodgers scored a run the 21st. Royce becomes the winner. And, of course, Royce was the starter for the next game and then would go on to win that game. So Jerry Royce was awarded a win on the same – two wins on the same day. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Fernando could, your- Fernando could hit um... – he in eighty two in eighty one he drove in he hit two fifty and he drove in seven runs, in eighty two he hit uh, his first career homer and he drove in nine runs. He hit three homers in eighty four. Um, wow. He hit two homers. At, he was thirty four years old playing for the Padres. He hit two home runs, drove in eight runs. Wow. Uh, his career batting <laughs> average, uh, him and him and Bob Uecker, two hundred right on nice. the Nice. Um, with ten homers and eighty four RBIs. Um. Okay, so wow, my story. Little, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get uh, folksy here. So, um, the game. See, it was a Monday, right? That was the game started on a Monday. Well, start, on Tuesday, started on Tuesday. Tuesday finished, finished on the. All right, correct. So Tuesday apparently was uh, was move-in day uh, for um, at the Winnebago County Fair for Angus cattle because what county? Winnebago, Winnebago County, Winnebago, Winnebago County Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, I was nine years old. And um, dad decided that it'd be good for young Andrew to uh, to raise a cow and show it at the fair. So I had a cow. You're like a 4-H guy? Yeah, I was in 4-H for a couple of years. Well, your dad, then, your dad was a farmer. Of course you'd probably. My brother had showed for years. My famous story about my brother was um, his first cow uh, It was like a pet. I mean, he, you know, he, he raised it from a calf and he would go out, he'd go out in the barn. Jim could like lay the, the cow would lay in the pen and Jim could lay on it, you know, like use it like a, you know, like a pillow and they were best friends and he takes it to the fair and he shows it and it wins, uh, I think reserve grand champion. And, um, they goes to the auctions, somebody buys it. And, um, I don't know if it was a grocery store. A lot of times grocery stores would buy the grand champion and the reserve grand so they could put a thing over the meat case that they, and so my brother was a kid. He was about as old as I was in, um, when this cub game happened and, you know, they couldn't take whoever bought it. Couldn't take the cow right then. They didn't have, so the the cow came home and then the next day a trailer pulls up. They're going to get the cow. And my brother realizes that this cow that he's raised, you know, like a, like a dog, is about to go um, meet its maker and become beef. Right. He starts crying. He's a kid, and the guy hands him the check. And my dad loved to tell a story. Jim looked down at the check and went, okay. <laughs> See ya. He wiped his looked tears. dad and said, all right, we doing this again next year? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I had to take, I, it was my turn, I had to take a cow to the fair. And this game had to have started at 120, because I remember we waited around, and when Eric Gregg blew the call, Dad's like, all right, fuck it, let's go. So we put the cow, we spent time, we put the cow in the trailer, we got in the thing, we drove to Pecatonica to go to the fairgrounds. Right, game's still going get, on. Get settled v- in, v- right? And You're listening to Vince We're listening to it the all the way there, it goes to extra innings, and then we go in, and they, we jack around in there for a while, you know, you got to unload all your gear and all that stuff, and... um you have to wait around a little bit, make sure the cow gets settled. Some some 4-H kids would, like, spend the night in the barn. They did it mostly so they could 
jack around after hours at the fairground. I was nine. I wasn't going to do that. No, you're too young. We got back in the truck, and the damn game's still going on. Dad's like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so we get back home. We listen to it all the way home. And then uh, the next day, we get back in the truck to go back to the fairgrounds. And I'm sure they started early. I'm sure they didn't start. I'm sure they didn't wait till 1.20. They probably you said started. that. Yeah, this is why you're convinced that it started at 1.20. Yeah, so the next, I think they probably are. We got Because now you got to squeeze two days, two games in on Tuesday. So well, because they played eight, They played 17, almost two games, you know, which would yeah. be, even back then, five hours tops. Well, what I'm saying is we probably yeah. got in the truck about before noon, and they probably were starting up at noon to start the second game to try to oh, get it Tuesday. done. And then, because right. then you got to have the right. break, and then you got to try to play nine innings after that. Yeah. And uh, we listened to it, and then um, the uh, so what is it? So the in the in the, the top of the twenty first, right? Well, yeah, it was a twenty one inning game. Yeah, uh, my nemesis. Um, well, Jerry Royce has to bat for himself, and he grounds out. Then Steve Sachs doubles. My nemesis Ken Landro. Uh, um, oh, he walks. There was a wild pitch during his at bat. They put Sachs to third. And yep. then Johnny B. Dusty Baker came up, hit a fly ball to right field, probably to Leon Durham. And at least according to Vince and Lou, uh, Leon threw Sacks out at the plate. Oh, I don't remember that. And Eric, and Eric got Eric, that call Eric, wrong. Oh. And the run scored. Oh, my God. So we heard the same call. I just don't remember. I remember that he got that both, that there were two plays at the plate. And he got them both wrong, and both against the both fuck, went against the, the Cubs. Cubs. God, I hated Eric Craig so much. He was in his prime in '82. God, so twice in that game. That that's a great bookend to my story. It basically begins and ends with Eric Craig blowing a fucking call. And wow. So in this yeah. is good in the in the twenty first. Um, does they moved uh, Tommy Lasordis shuffling guys around? Uh, Fernando comes out and Bob Welch goes in to play left field. And then so oh, this is good. This is, that. this is, you know, uh, Alan Ripley, um, Alan Ripley's having to bat. The Cubs are clearly out of, uh, pitcher, by the way, the pitcher who yeah. get given up the run in the top of the 21st is now pitch is now batting leading off the, the bottom of the 21st. Yeah. Um, so the next game starter is already up, in the game. Tommy switches. He has Dusty go to left and Bob Welch go to right. Um, Ripley flies out to center. So then wow. Jody comes up and uh, Tommy has Welch and Dusty switch. Welch goes to right and or Welch goes to left and Dusty goes to right. And for who? For Jody. So, uh, well, I would assume that Dusty goes to left and. Welch goes to right for Jody. It says Bob Welch moves from right to left. Dusty moves from left to right. I, okay, look at that. Okay. Oh, I know. It's it's opposite. Okay, so after they... All right, now I can read it. Nothing like re- figuring this shit out while live on the podcast. For Alan Ripley, Bob Welch went in and replaced Fernando. So he's in left. When Fernando's Jody, out of the game. Right, then they switched. They switched. Dusty went to uh, left for Jody's at bat. Then they switched back for Steve Henderson. 
and Henderson grounded out also, second to end the game. Henderson also, by the way, a right-handed hitter, so I don't know. Tommy, you know, Tommy Lasorda, the guy likes attention. You know, yes. maybe he just wanted to get out there and Oh, we're gonna pitch him. we're gonna pitch Henderson away. That's you know, what I was thinking. we're gonna make him hit it to right. So we'll put Dusty over there. Or maybe he just thought, you know, Dusty's Dusty's a shitty outfielder. Let's move him. Well, I'd rather have him hit the ball to Bob Welch. Maybe that's what Tommy was thinking. Um, no time like the present to point out that this was Alan Ripley's one season with the Cubs. And so I know for a fact that this happened in 82 during the season. So this is for, you know, your fact checkers out here. The Cubs won their, the Cubs won their 8,000th game in franchise history. I believe it may have happened in Houston in the Astrodome and Alan Ripley was the winning pitcher. I might be able to verify it somewhere, but, uh, or you can just take my word for it. Cause why the fuck would I make that up? How many wins did Alan Ripley get that year? He went four and six. I just looked it up. Let's see. His wins were in. He won at well, Pittsburgh. Wanna... He won a home game against the Phillies. He won a home game against the Cardinals. And he won a game in San Francisco. Oh, and Aaron Wright. There it is. So he won five games. One, two, three, four, five. On one of those, the one on May thirteenth. There you he, go. He beat the Astros. Uh, the Cubs won five nothing in the Astros. complete game shutout. Oh, look at that! Yeah, because I remember him walking off the mound. So not only did he get the win, but he was getting the spotlight as he walked off the field. Cubs win their eight thousandth game in history. Well, he's he good old Alan Ripley. Um, he didn't. He pitched six innings. Only gave up so only gave much up for two that. hits. Lee Smith got a three inning save. Only gave up go. one hit. So, struck out two. So much for that narrative about Ripley walking off the yep. mound, but I do know he was the winning pitcher, and that was the 8,000th win in franchise history. Oh, and it was a huge crowd in the Astrodome, uh, 13,534. Oh. The 13-19 Cubs beat the 14-19 Astros. Yeah, Astros were uh, kind of uh, rearranging themselves. They were in between good periods, I think, uh, after the whole, like, yeah, that 80 team, 81, 79, you know, when J.R. Richard went down, they struggled, Joe Necro. They had good teams and then kind of middling, never awful. And then they kind of came, 86, they came back with Mike Scott. Um, yeah, in fact, they really beat, much. beat Joe, former Cub Joe Necro. Former Cub, yeah, Joe 69 Cub. loss in the 8,000th win in Cub history. How about that? Yeah, 69 Cub. Um, another thing that happened in 82, another thing that uh, Dallas Green ushered in, because he's like, wake up, fucking franchise. How the hell did you not notice that this uh, old cheap bohemian that built this fucking legacy brand by borrowing your ballpark uh, for football for 50 years, retiring all these numbers? Like, what is wrong with you people? You have, you've not even honored any of your past. So 1982 ushered another thing that that – you know, that came in with Dallas Green and Tribune, aside from all the new players and the new farm system and the new broadcaster and Harry was uh pageantry. Heine Zimmerman day. They retired Heine Zimmerman's yeah. number, even though he didn't wear a number in, yep. in, in 1908. Retired a blank. Uh, but they <laughs> stripe, you know, but they, uh, they got us all excited. And again, this was great stuff. This, this might've been maybe John McDonough, a young John McDonough may have had his, had his hand in the, maybe Dallas green and trusted him. Hey, let's do some bold shit. Let's like fucking 
you know, let's stop being so damn narrow and bland. And, and so we got our first ever number retirement in 1982 and it would uh, be the only logical choice. Right. At that point in time, I believe 1982 was the year in which no Ernie Banks got elected into the hall. He did. He play. He didn't play as late as seventy. He got elected first ballot. Writers. Did everybody get fucking dragged along back then? Nobody was a first ballot back then. Maybe because if eighty two, I'm pretty sure eighty two is a year that Ernie also. So maybe no, he, got inducted, he got inducted. He got in seventy seven. Yeah. Right. Okay. So right. Of course, fucking PK Wrigley is like about to die or is dead. And then his widow dies. And William Wrigley's like, oh, fuck, I got to pay all this, like, inheritance tax. And I don't – nobody's paying attention to the team, you know, for a while. Uh, Ernie's in the Hall of Fame. So it takes a few years before Dallas Green, Tribune, John McDonough, whatever. They come on board in 82, and the, they're going to set it right. Let's honor this man while there are at least uh, people alive that saw him play. Yeah, Ernie, so was, they did. Ernie was a first ballot Hall of Famer, 80, 83.8%. Terrific. Like to know who who the assholes were. Who uh, oh, no, he's he's not on well, first base. There's always someone. There's never. There's been Greatest one power hitting shortstop of all time. One to this day, he's one of only two shortstops who've ever hit 40 home runs in a season. The other one just happened. Fernando Tatis Jr. Wow. Even in the steroid era, none of those shortstops hit nope, 40. It's only Ernie. No shit. 40 in whatever many years, Ernie was the only guy, and he had two. Had him back to back. Were they both in his MVP years of yes. 58, 59? Yep. Okay. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's another thing, though, that like that connected kids. We knew about Ernie because our dads were Cub fans, right? We knew about him. But it was a thing now where just in case, you know, let's, like, let's build some sort of cohesion, let's, some coherent uh, brand here, right? Past, present, future. Let's get some inertia. Let's get some positive mojo. So that's another thing that happened in 82 is that, you know, they, they at least sort of righted, uh, you know, righted some of that. They just kind of woke up and acted like a real franchise. I do. I still think to this day, it's weird the way the Cubs honor their past. Like it's great that they're kind of catching up with the number retirements. Um, Oh, we did a whole two hours on the Wall of Fame last yeah. year, which are, I think are like have gone beyond like the Kinko's like plastic sheaths with yeah. a printout down in a freaking like a, it's like in an alley down. It's like what the hell? Um, you know they don't it, the the you know they put them on the flagpole, so that's fine. They're relatively prominent, but there's the way they honor other things with those weird the flags on the grandstand where they're mostly nobody they're kind can of see those. Code. Like they they use initials or a number or whatever, and it's supposed to be significant. And nobody, you can't. I mean, most of the park, you can't see them. If you're well, in the nobody grandstand, can see you can't at, see them. Even if you can see them, you can't read right. them. Right? It's just it's not stupid. even a guy with cataracts. Right. That, I think I completely think they botched the when they finally won the World Series and they put the three the way they put the three flags up. I mean, they're it's honestly you couldn't have found a more prominent place to put that than those i just it's i just think it's strange what um, three flags what do you what do you the three world series yeah. flags 0708 2016 yeah i mean it's, they're fine they're there but it's like i'd have i don't know i just spray painted the whole fucking side of the park with the three relax flags. imagination <laughs> um but more than that they you know now they're i have a feeling we're about to uh enter a a 
the golden era of statues. You know, they're they've moved they moved the statues. They're building. They're using the <laughs> the cash grab for the sports book as an excuse to build Statue Row in Gallagher Way, which is where they're going to relocate all the statues except for Harry. <laughs> Harry being dragged into the gates of hell by angry Cub fans is going to remain where it is. <laughs> the player ones are going to move. They're adding Fergie this year. I so would, it's like their answer to Yankee Stadium's yeah. monument, uh, whatever park. Okay. Um, but it's it to me. There's still it's like what's the holdup on some of these? Like wh- why? Ryan Sandberg retired in ninety six. Ninety seven. Ninety seven. Ninety seven. After the ninety seven season. Twenty five years have gone by, and he's he doesn't have a statue yet. Are we just are we, are we waiting for Ryan to die before we put the statue? I guess that's true. I didn't even consider that. Okay, because I I was always bemoaning the fact that Jesus like when they finally got around to getting the statues it. Was, was all the six the DeRocher era Cubs? Right, fine. You know they're still a sizable fan. Yeah, we're base. still recognizing the guys who didn't. It's who didn't the, win anything. But there's fine. nothing they were for great like, players. They deserve their statues. Right, but, but there's no there's no Frank Chance or Gabby Hartnett yeah. or you right. know the Cubs have this rich history that goes back to the right. very beginnings, and it's it, you would think Cubs history started in 1969 correct. when you walk it, around. It. It, if you weren't geeks like you and me that like are into the history and realize that holy shit, this was a, a sterling brand for the first seventy five years of their existence. They weren't always a laughing stock. You no know, thanks to their their own ownership, like not even you know, at least out of embarrassment, you would think, just promoting the earlier dominant era that they had. But no, we, we had to do that research on our own. Yeah, and then they've made the whole they've made the whole Sammy thing so unnecessarily weird. Right, that's like, you could make that bankable somehow and not be weird, right? And they didn't even have to do that. They could have literally just, like, just when they first took over, they should have just done the bare minimum. Literally, Sammy comes out, he throws out a first pitch, he sings a stretch, and then you don't have to do anything else ever. But you, but this weird, we don't, he, you know, he says he's never been asked back. And they're like, well, he knows what he did. It's like, no, he doesn't. I, what, he didn't do anything to you. You didn't own the fucking team back then. Whatever he supposedly did that was so terrible. Right. Um, just, yeah, it, that one is such a ginormous elephant in the room. It's like, <laughs> yeah, like it's saying you have to retire Sammy's number or no, no, no. You're not. Or you're give not, him a statue. But the fact that they've like made him this pariah. When honestly, you have a whole you have a whole generation of Cub fans that are Cub fans because of Sammy. I know, and they're very. I mean, like, if if you don't have any context and you just pull up the numbers, you're like, "Holy shit, this guy was incredible!" All right, he has the most home runs in team history. He has more home runs as a Cub than Ernie Banks. Than Ernie Banks, so see, and Dallas Green would have fuck the most it. ever, considering the fact that they now are apparently never going to keep anybody more than seven years. So correct. But you know that that proves my point. Dallas Green wasn't fucking around. He takes care of Ernie Banks right away. Like it, like he was, like he dismissed a lot of sentimental fans that were like they love the day baseball, they love the shitty teams. But he also sort of at the same time, without being like patronizing or like lessening himself, he also honored the past by Ernie. He brought back Fergie, which was not necessarily it wouldn't be with Dallas Green a sentimental decision because Fergie was productive. But like he wasn't like a complete like just be given a fuck you to you know the fans of the shitty team although he would have been you know justified to do so uh he was very respectful of this you know of their past you know so they they they, they retired Banks's number they brought back fergie so fergie's in uniform while his old teammates getting his number retired there's some synergy there that 
again, that's all new shit for us. Like what's going on around Clark and Addison? Good yeah, things so like are when, happening. When I sell this podcast to Spotify and I get the I get the big check. Then I'm gonna buy I'm gonna I'm gonna buy out the Ricks. I'm gonna buy the Cubs. The first thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go back and I'm I'm gonna do I'm gonna I'm gonna make a Carrie Wood statue. I'm gonna put it in thing, but it's gonna be an interactive statue. What it's gonna be is it's gonna be a statue of Carrie with his arm in the MRI machine. And then you can take a picture of yourself like analyzing Carrie's MRI results. Just standing there like pointing like this looks bad. <laughs> right. Look at the the, sta- the the most the most popular statue will be the one of Carlos Abrano punching Michael Barrett. Yes. Uh, we'll even we'll make like a little like a little kind of a like a scale model replica of a dugout, and you can like sit on the bench kind of behind them, and and you can have your family take a picture of you like observing from the kind of craning your neck on the bench while Carlos is punching him. It was great when you know the I Cubs like did that. The Cubs did that thing last week where if you sent them a picture. Your favorite picture from Wrigley Field, they would make you like a little digital, like postcard you could send to people. Okay. I sent them one, and they refused to make one out of it. I found a shot of Carlos. This is great. Right be it's right before he punches Barrett. He literally Carlos has his glove, and he's like holding. He has his glove almost on Mike Michael's head, like he's holding him in place with his glove, so that he can get a completely unencumbered punch in right in his face. That'll be great. And then, of course, I'm going to get special permission from Major League Baseball. We're going to install a, uh, a Luis Valbuena bat flip statue on the field. The guys, well, are, just the, to, uh, guys are just going to have to play around it. It'll be we'll have it in foul territory with the you know with the, with the bat flip. It'll be the one when he uh, when he bat flipped the single off of Scott Felton right. with the Astros. Will the bat be suspended in the air by an otherwise sort of uh, like unable undetectable sort of a string, or will it like fling up a bat? Like and then every few minutes that you have to be careful about as you walk. Yeah, that would under. be good. That would be. It would make it more exciting if the bat kind of kind of like rotate. The physicists, the physicists have done it in a way that he flips it where it falls down a chute each line time. Just kind of goes up every few minutes, and it gets sucked in, and then. But you still, but you still have to be careful when you walk through. Um, I have to give one last obscure reference to a game that happened in '82, which would be uh, the penultimate game of the season. We actually talked about this on Twitter uh, when we did the two episodes ago. We did the 1980 Cubs, and some you know forklift got in there with a Scott Thompson reference, and then I, I there were some replies, and I brought up the fact that uh, I thought it was the last game of the season, but it was the penultimate game. Um, but Scott Thompson, of course, was a Cub prospect that Cub fans like today, uh, prospect perverts, uh, tend to over – they overrated him. He wasn't that good. But we wanted him – I know my dad wanted him to be the opening day center fielder in 1980 um, before Preston Gomez went with uh, 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 Carlos Lascano. And this Scott Thompson, he looked like he would be a good hitter. His left-handed stick, hit line drives, but he just, you know, really uh, never panned out. But – my dad took me to the game this day, Fan Appreciation Weekend. I remember I got a Cubs binder, you know, a little thing that even snapped the the things that you could pull mm-hmm. back. Pretty pretty nifty. Dalgan, Dallas Green, John McDonough. You know, you talk about things are different here this year. Things were definitely different in 1982. But on the penultimate day of the season, uh, I remember Scott Thompson got went four for five. Must have been his only four-hit game of his career. And then the only other memory that I have of this game was that uh, my dad and I were walking home down Clark, not walking home, but walking towards his car on Clark Street. And um, 
um, at, we've got the Clark and Grace, which you know was uh, hadn't yet been named for the, uh, the two first basemen of the 1989 uh, NLCS, but is only about two blocks northwest of the uh, of the uh, of Wrigley Field. There was the Piano Man Bar, which uh, actually had a piano player, and my dad would sometimes like to just drop in, have a beer, I can have a pop. I always enjoyed it, and we stopped into the Piano Man after that game in 1982. But uh, had actually kept score in that game. Had it somewhere still. Uh, Scott Thompson four for five. Uh, the season was about to end. The Cardinals, of course, would go on to greater things that season. Doesn't matter because uh, a couple years later, Cubs would get their crack. That's it. I gave my Scott Thompson props. Yeah, I um. I'm sure we went to games in 82. I don't remember off the top of my head. I remember way to the 81 when I, have, I get to tell the story of my first Cub game, which is very memorable. Which sounded similar to my 1980 game. It's a walk-off, you said, yes. but we'll get to it. It's a teaser. Yeah. Uh, 82. 84 was the year that I went I went to a bunch of games. This is how uh, you know the 84 Cubs was unexpected, that they were good. And the the, the Rockford Public Library – Mom would take me in there, and if you, for every X amount of books that you read, you got Cub tickets. Air quotes, read. Yeah, I actually, I read yeah. most of them. I'm sure you did, but like, you could But you yeah, could I was checking out books just to out. make sure. Right. I, and I, I believe we went to, we went to five free Cub games that year, and the Cubs won them all. Wow. I remember Dad bragging about that. Mandra and I went to five games, and they won them all, and we didn't pay for any of them. I feel like 80, the 84 season was very much, uh, yeah, it's obviously, it's linear from the 80, 82 was, was ground zero to some good things that would happen for the first time in our lives in the, in the first time for a long time for older guys. Um, so I, I remember it fondly. They were a 73 win team, but even as a 10 year old kid, I kind of had a sense that, you know, something, something could break here. 83 is a little bit of a setback and they, they were, they were not much better or worse. And then things, you know, ignited in 84, but uh, I don't have really, you know, I have positive associations with the 82 Cubs. Funny as it sounds, but in the context, it makes sense. So you were surprised they didn't catch fire the last 39 games, of 83 when Charlie Fox took over. Yeah, we thought maybe that might do it. And Carmelo Martinez homered his first uh, official at bat, but not played appearance. Yeah, I, eighty-three was not bad. That that'll be fun when when we talk that one up. You know, we'll go down the Elia rabbit hole. I mean, Elia got through this season unscathed. He was a good manager. I do think just in talking about it today, how I just feel he's probably a good manager for Sandberg. Sandberg got off to a terrible start to his career, and fucking he didn't get buried. So. You know, but of course, maybe that was coming down from on high. I think Dallas Green always had his eye on Sandberg. Well, Ilya famously, he met, he coached with Lou in Seattle the entire time Lou was there. And when Later he took on. the Cub job, he he was going to hire Lee. And Lee basically said, you know what? He, they basically committed and said, yeah, I don't want to do that. Too much stigma, too much attention because of that, which is unfortunate. It but it's one of those things where we would have had to put up with it for a few days. He'd be fine, and right? Then it becomes, you know, and it's also one of those things well, that has once got, a year, the once a year on the anniversary, right? Well, I, I play the. Well, I heard it today. Lynn Bramer on WXRT does his opener, and he does a pretty funny uh, bit where he—it's all bleeped out, but he recites it, and they're saying, "Well, it's a one-man show at the Schubert Theater." So I heard it today. In fact. 
Uh, and it's actually one of those things that has actually gotten stronger through the years, I feel like. It, we'll talk about it in 83 because he did not get fired after that. It was early in the season, and the yep. Cubs did fucking turn it around uh, until they petered out. But we'll we'll dive into that because there is some nuance there. But in 82, Leelia first season – Got kind of like uh, Dick Duran after the disaster where Dave Wanstead bottomed the Bears out. Like Lee Ely at least turned the ship around. You know, he didn't he didn't take us anywhere, but he he and Dallas Green and all those new players, the culture totally did fucking change in '82. And it was only my third full season following the Cubs, and it was like night and day compared to 1980, 1981. Yeah, I and mean, we'll talk about it when we get to, when we, when the wheel spins around '83. But the players. Um, the players loved it. I mean, he, there was their Fuck manager, yeah. and and he, not only was he standing up for them, but it's, <laughs> well, when you listen to it, I'm, I'll, we'll, we can play it. We'll play we'll it. To we'll that. Probably play it. We we'll get to like, it. Where are where did Lee? Where was Lee wrong? Anywhere in there? Nowhere. Everything he said was right and hysterical. So, yep, yep. Poor. I shouldn't say poor Lee. No, he's fine. He's fine. He's made a nice career. He's still alive. I mean, we can get our whole thing. We maybe the maybe we would have been better off had he stuck around. Could have grown with that team. I don't. I don't but, you know, know that the '84 Cubs won because of Jim Fry, and they may have met their demise w- because of him instead of. No, they won because of Dallas Green. I feel like his Dallas continued to shift and deal and do everything all the way up until opening day in 84 and he got Dernier and Matthew. Yeah, and there's yeah. a whole other rabbit hole to go down about it. So if, uh, if if they never hired Jim Fry in 84, do they... Um, I find it hard to believe the 84 Cubs don't win. If they do everything else, I find it hard to believe they don't go to the playoffs. Right, like Green and, still gets Suckliffe and Eckersley. He's not around to fuck everything up after they fire Dallas. Which he right. Does. So, oh my God, yeah, boy! I look, I look forward to the agony of uh, of revisiting that, Andy. Thing. Yeah. I haven't really considered that before. <laughs> Thanks for. Then I can tell my that was going to lurk in my subconscious. Jim at, the, at a Cub convention one year. So. Yes. Wait, you'll have to bring it up again. You've you've mentioned it before. Might as well bring it up now while we finish. I don't know. Maybe not. Jim Fry had nothing to do with the 82. I think Jim Fry probably got fired during the 82 season in Kansas City because he was himself two years removed. Well, from how about the how about the Dallas hiring the, the guy he beat in the World Series to manage the right. team? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they managed against each other. Yeah, I got a whole Jim then... Fry thing we can do in 84 and 85 about the stupid little tennis shoes he wore. And, um, but no, so at a co-convention <laughs> – um, we ended up in line. He was sitting with, I could, I'm sure the ball's over here. I could see who else signed the ball. He was sitting at a table with another person. And Dad and I wanted it, the autograph of whoever it, he was sitting with. And so wasn't Ruben Amaro? Probably. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so we got in line to get the, and so he's first. So, of course, you're not going to, you're just going to let him sign the ball. And they, they handed it to him. And I looked at him and said, ah, oh, we'll get him in game six. As he famously, although I kind of debunked this when I did a right. rewatch of the of Game Five in '84, Suckliff was gassed. Yes, I think Rick Suckliff would have ended up in a puddle, and it really and also have, it really wouldn't have killed Rick to at some point in his career actually been in shape. That might have well, <laughs> but also Jim Fry may have been partially senile. I had no idea what your what the dig was anyway, right? But you but know. that was at the time. You know, there's still a lot of there's a lot of thought that they they. 
should have simply gone for the kill and and started Sutcliffe in game four. It might have worked. Really, it was only a matter of hours. I know. He got and, extra it was, rest because and it was a, and it was a night, night, game. night game. And he did melt down because it was hot. It was hot out, San Diego. And, that, and, and he's a little tubby, and he decided he needed the big yeah. beard to pitch in the summer. Um, and he gets they give him a three and nothing lead, and then he gets tired, and then bad things happen. You know, and we get into that in '84. I don't. Ridiculous I don't need to things make, happen too. Right. So. I don't. I don't need to make a note of it because I'm sure it'll come up organically. But like making a note to. Uh, discuss the alternate history wherein the Cubs, 83, 83 Cubs, don't get off to a slow start. Lee Elia doesn't lose his shit. They actually have this linear progression that 82 begins, and then he's there in 84. Uh, no, we, we can go down that rabbit hole uh, next week. We'll just uh, conclude by saying we just finished Lee Elia's one complete season with the Cubs. Yeah. All right. Well, there they were, the – the mostly nondescript 1982 cup. <laughs> but the beginning of something special. Yes. All right. Well, we'll do this again next week. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Andy. Many of us have herpes. 